How do you feel, honey? Fine. Hospital. Fine, what am I doing in the hospital? You took an overdose of pills. Get in the papers. Lion told them it was accidental. Well, it was. It was honest. I know. But the next time you meant to be so lucky. What am I gonna do? Anna and I want you to go to a sanitarium in Los Angeles. A nut house. No. It's the same place no. that Tony is in. Man, I'm not nutty. I am just hooked on dolls. They say getting off them is worse than booze or dope. Oh, man, I'm scared. I've forgotten how to sleep without dolls. I can't get through a day without a doll. Please, Lion, don't send me there. I need a doll. Lion, don't leave me here. Give me a doll. Just what? Lion! God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 228, Valley of the Dolls. Something I knew we'd get to at some point. I don't think I anticipated it showing up in one trashy summer, but... This is the, one of the original trashy movies. Yeah. It's a game changer. That's right. <laughs> I have a lot of opinions on this movie. Especially in regards to other people's opinions of it. Yeah, I was telling you uh, before the show that, I, I mean, the first time I ever saw this, we had watched it together. And I think immediately we're kind of talking about this being something we could do for the show, even though it was probably a weird first viewing. <laughs> a lot more songs than I think either of us were anticipating in the front end of the movie. Yeah. Well, I didn't really know much about it the first time we watched it, which at this point was probably like four or five years ago. Yeah, it was definitely back at the apartment. So anyway... This is week three of One Trashy Summer. I think now would be a good time to let listeners know, especially newer listeners, that yes, we're doing a little bit more obscure titles this month, a little off the beaten path, Hot Dog the Movie. You ain't seen nothing yet, just wait till next week. <laughs> oh yeah. This one is somewhat known, although I don't know that a ton of people have seen it. It, it doesn't really have a ton of presence in... Yeah. The modern world, I think. I don't think this is one that a lot of my friends are going to be like texting me <laughs> afterwards. When I saw it hit the feed, I was like, yes, which, believe it or not, actually did happen for Hot Dog the Movie. Thanks, Shane, for being the one listener that recognized that one. Well, I do think that this movie's big in certain circles. It definitely is a cult classic. It's a camp classic. But I do think that there is the shroud of what happened with Sharon Tate after the movie was made, and I think that probably affected some people's desire to continue to revisit it. It's sort of hard to 
embrace the guilty pleasure aspect of a movie like this when you're thinking like oh well this poor woman was murdered shortly thereafter you know what i mean yeah it's like kind of this horrible dark thing hanging over the movie yeah because we take this movie fairly seriously maybe in an embarrassing way (laughs) but i think large swaths of the audience have always seen this as something that's sort of quote so bad it's good which i don't agree with but that's sort of where a lot of the energy for this movie comes from so i don't know if people want to embrace that and then be like oh let's make fun of the acting in this movie and then oh this actress is dead i don't know so it probably like took a hit for a while and subsequently is not really a part of like a lot of people's consciousness now even though this movie was a big hit yeah it was a huge money maker at the time although critically not no success no, it defied all logic and reason yeah, as yeah. to why this was such a huge hit, but it was. It, but it is a fun watch. I mean, that's why. So my point was... Yeah, go ahead. We will get back to the big titles that people recognize in July, I guess is where I was starting out. Oh, that's right. Just yeah. a reminder that... We do care. <laughs> yeah, we have our little one trashy summer, and then things will get back to normal. We have a, a crazy big rest of the year planned. We spent hours like almost an hour trying to decide one movie which isn't even for months months away that we're like debating this that's one of those things that i flip-flop on all the time which is like sometimes i'm just like man we've done everything good (laughs) then there's other times where it's just like the opportunities are limitless we have so much stuff left to do but there are times when i'm like looking at lists or going over things i'm like done that done that done that thinking about things that are my favorites we we have hit a lot of the good ones well i do think we have a lot of choices left but i agree with you sometimes we were looking for one thing in particular but my point is that we've got a big rest of the year planned for everyone so follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple podcasts give us a rating and review if you'd like we certainly appreciate it oh definitely nothing makes us happier if you'd like a sticker for free shipped to you let us know on twitter I just got to tell you on the sticker thing, I feel like the stack is half down. Burning through them. Quicker than maybe one would have expected. Not everybody has use for a sticker, but it it still makes us feel good to get some support. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to a friend. <laughs> yeah. Tell a friend about the show. Spread the word. We're sort of a DIY podcast out here for over five years now, just trying to make it work. Having oh, yeah. fun doing it for ourselves. Just what everybody wants. More DIY podcasts. Well, this time we have a foothold. We've been around for over five years. That's right. An established listenership, I would say, at this point. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. And finally, you can find us on Letterboxd. Me, Zach1983, and Matt, Matt Crosby, logging everything we're watching. Follow us on there. We'll follow you back. We'll talk about movies, see what people review stuff, whatever. And I think this will be the last episode we plug it for a while. Maybe. You had made mention of that, that we need to take a step back (laughs) on bringing that up on the episodes. Well, it always just depends. My mood with Letterboxd is just very turbulent. (laughs) (laughs) It's always all over the map. Yeah. Well, I have my things that I like to run down and say, and then if I subtract something from it, then I'm going to feel like something's missing, and then we'll be sitting here being like, did I say everything I need to say? That's true. Let's keep The whole it thing. Yeah. Valley of the Dolls came out in 1967. 
which was a big year for movies, which we discussed on the Bonnie and Clyde episode. It was sort of a turning point in American filmmaking. Things were changing. I think this movie, in a weird way, helped push the envelope just as much as Bonnie and Clyde or The Graduate. It wasn't necessarily as critically acclaimed. I think it's just not as obvious in the tone because it still kind of feels wholesome. This movie is like... It's almost like its own conflict within itself as to what it wants to be. Yeah. Because it's based on the 1966 novel of the same name by Jacqueline Susan, which was considered a trashy book, and it is. And they cut a lot of the trash out, but they left a lot of it in, and there was last-minute changes to the script, and all these different things happened. But it's evident in the movie itself that they couldn't really quite decide how yeah. far to take it, what the tone was, what the ending should be like. This director, Mark Robson, I mean, I, I don't know how many of his movies I've seen, but he does seem to like the idea of the underbelly. This is kind of like the underbelly of the glamour of fame, but he did Peyton Place. Which is another trashy book that was heavily neutered to make a movie, though. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the same. It's right. probably why he was picked was like, well, he's done something like this before. Yeah, yeah. I know Peyton Place is a movie that like David Lynch has cited as influence. Yeah. But at the time that that came out, they couldn't really delve into the whole incest stuff it, that as much. Ha- it definitely does have a similar feel, like a similar vibe. The screenplay was written by Helen Deutsch and Dorothy Kingsley. Harlan Ellison also worked on it, but had his name removed because of all of the changes that were being made. The novel was the biggest selling novel of 1966 and to date has sold more than 31 million copies, which is insane and makes it one of the highest selling novels ever. (laughs) This is insanely popular. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of something that has always existed in American culture but rarely gets called out, which is housewives and men too, but there's definitely a segment of the population that loves trashy books and always has. And they don't really see it the same way as trashy movies or trashy TV shows, which they would probably never watch because it's too trashy to actually see it. But whether you're talking about like V.C. Andrews, like Flowers in the Attic or My Sweet Audrina, like the trashiest books you could come up with are huge sellers. And this was an era of trashy books like Lolita came out in the 50s and was made into a movie and Peyton Place, and Valley of the Dolls. And it's just this whole segment of the culture that has always been around. It's still around now. I think that the books that people read are probably way trashier than the movies yeah. they see. It's weird, because you do like think back. I don't know that you're like, you would think the 50s feel like they were a more wholesome time, but it's like someone was like, I got to get this out there. And yeah. the masses were celebrating it. They're like, yes, somebody put this out. Both the book and the film were eviscerated by critics, but were runaway commercial successes. On a $4.69 million budget, the film grossed $50 million worldwide. And essentially, it fits into One Trashy Summer because it was trashy for its time. I don't necessarily think that by today's standards, this movie is particularly trashy, but I think in terms of the cultural warfare that was going on, this is sort of a key movie because of the different things it deals with, even if it isn't as gritty as you would think it should be. Right. Just even broaching some of the topics in this movie was so unheard of. Oh, that's true. 
The film has now developed a cult following with some critics and audiences citing its campy sensibility. The film is particularly celebrated by the gay community for its campiness and has become a part of the LGBT cultural canon. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some laughable dialogue in it. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on it too because I think that there is a way to appreciate this movie on a very serious level and not think of it as for lack of a better term, a joke or something yeah, like that. I, I gotta say, I mean, I don't watch this at all and feel like I'm watching like the room. No, no, no. <laughs> it's not like that, but it's just so over the top. Yeah, it's so for like sure. overblown for and crazy. The dialogue is very like soap opery. Yeah. And very melodramatic. Yes. One of the big things in the making of Valley of the Dolls, other than it being based on a highly successful novel, was the publicity that it earned through casting Judy Garland in the Helen Lawson role. Judy Garland is probably who the Neely O'Hara character is based upon. We'll sort of touch on the characters and who they're based on later. Uh But at this point, Judy was really struggling with a lot of the things that Neely struggles with in the movie in real life. And there's definitely some cynical takes about the casting of her in this movie that Robeson did it intentionally just to get attention and then made it very difficult for her to perform and then subsequently Mm. fired her from the movie. Stunt casting? Basically, yeah, just to get attention, and then they knew they were going to fire her all Uh along. She was in very rough shape. You can watch some things either on the Blu-ray or on YouTube where... They filmed some stuff, some wardrobe stuff and whatnot. And, I mean, she looks way older than she actually was. Oh, wow. Like, very skinny, like emaciated. It's pretty rough. Okay. She ends up being replaced by Susan Hayward. Who I think is good in the role. Yeah, and I think is much closer to what Jacqueline Susan had in mind. Because supposedly that character is based off of Ethel Merman, who... Jacqueline Susan knew for like a long time and had a tumultuous friendship with in real life. But yeah, that almost adds to the whole like oeuvre of the film, this Judy Garland yeah. thing. There's that like this happened. meta thing going on with yes. Judy Garland and the Neely character. And Judy Garland would be dead within, I don't know, a year and a half or less after this movie came out, basically. Oh, wow. She was kind of at the end. Yeah, and there's a lot of little sad elements about this movie not least of which is the Sharon Tate stuff but yeah that's the thing that's what I think grounds my feelings of the movie in reality which is like yes this stuff is so over the top overblown ridiculous crazy but it's also seems kind of real right doesn't this seem like what it's like in some ways yeah for sure yes this is sort of a condensed super speed version of it that races through all this stuff but i kind of buy a lot of it absolutely yeah it feels like there's some truth to what happens to some of these people and this has been portrayed in other movies too there's almost like a little bit of a black swan thing going on with the aging star or even a showgirls yeah the all about eve story that's been done over and over. Right. It, it sort of pops up in this. But yeah, and then just not being able to handle it and the pressures of it. And I think that when this movie was released, it was not viewed favorably by feminists of the time. But I think there has been sort of a revisionist take on this movie in recent years, at least among some circles, where I do think that this is sort of a 
portrayal of the difficulties that women face in these kind of industries where so much emphasis is placed on their looks and appearance and their body and the pressures that come with that and maintaining it and sort of how depending on what attributes or gifts you might have in life, how those things change, like whether you have the body that Jennifer has or the talent that Neely has or whatever and the different things that can happen there. Or the the charm of an Anne. I was trying to think of what she's supposed to have. I think it's supposed Um, to be like grace and poise. (laughs) At some point, you know, while making this movie, they were like, what if we make these three women witches and this young beauty comes in? (laughs) It's like a neon demon situation. Valley of the Dolls touches on abortion, addiction, porno, with glorious, over-the-top melodrama, which spilled into the making of the film, which was apparently filled with bickering and feuding and animosity. By the way, I'm not ready to say what Jennifer North was doing was porno. I think that was art. art. Yeah. Yeah. Except for Sharon Tate, who was apparently angelic and not involved in all of this fighting and bickering which i can definitely believe her reputation always seems to be that she was super nice and everyone liked her i know that patty duke and mark robeson hated each other and (laughs) she seems to have held that grudge until the end of her life i mean she definitely did not get along with him was there some art imitating life with her whole situation oh yeah because she also did not get along with susan hayward okay yeah (laughs) But she sort of blamed Robeson for that, too, because there was some incident on set during that catfight scene where Susan Hayward, like, fell down, and then Robeson was sort of, like, implying that Patty Duke did it on purpose, okay. which made things, like, tense. Yeah. Anyway, it's it definitely it up, weird. You know? Yeah. <laughs> While I was preparing the notes for this episode and sort of taking in everyone's thoughts and opinions that I was seeing of the movie and previewing some of the bonus features on the Criterion Blu-ray and, you know, just reading different things. I sort of had a bunch of different thoughts about it. Can art be simultaneously mortifying in its absurdity and wonderfully prescient? Can it feel laughable and yet be uncomfortably honest at the same time? I think Valley of the Dolls is sort of like a funhouse mirror. It's a heightened experience. It's a warped dream. But it's also painfully familiar. It's two hours of condensed misery, <laughs> which can be satisfying and entertaining, but it's also garish and trashy and exaggerated and haunting and so many things. And it's true, there's not a lot of sequences of fun in this movie. No. In fact, the very next thing I wrote, it's a movie about glamour that never actually feels or looks glamorous at all. That's true. You don't see any of that, really. No, everything is very small and up close and the only, almost claustrophobic. Yeah, the only thing that keeps the movie from feeling as grim as it probably is is just like this feeling of kind of like wholesome presence that is there. Yeah, there's a bonus feature on the Blu-ray, a video essay by the critic Kim Morgan who compares the film to Requiem for a Dream. And at first you're like, Okay, that's strange, because that movie is so gritty, and it feels, like, realistic. Yeah, like, graphic. But then you, the more you think about it, it's like, is that movie any more realistic than this? Is this any more absurd than that? That's completely heightened and crazy, too. Yeah. It takes a different 
route in its craziness. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get away with a lot of the stuff that they do in Requiem for a Dream in this movie. You don't think there's going to be some similar, like, Jennifer Connelly type scenes? <laughs> no. In Valley of the Dolls? <laughs> I would have bought Electric Shock or whatever on Patty Duke. Yeah, it seems like they sort of dance around some of that stuff. But it's not that dissimilar, really. I think people had a hard time with it because of some of the absurd dialogue. But there's like, there's a certain vibe that this movie has that you can either get on or not. You can either Definitely. sort of embrace the crazy shit that some of the characters say. And I believe me, I have a million quotes oh, written yeah. down. And I do think it's jarring. The first time we ever watched this, it was kind of taking me a while to like get into this world. Now I can start right off and be in that mode but first go around it was taking me a little bit to like really kind of vibe with it yeah there's sort of a a unique off the wall poetry to this movie in some of the ways that the characters speak and some of the things that they say and it's got its own unique language and outlook on something that feels like it's probably pretty common and real in hollywood this sort of some of the characters feel, like, shockingly real. Some of the characters don't feel real at all to me. Like, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> you don't think there's just sort of, like, dummies that well, that's go true. along yeah. with things? <laughs> yeah. Looking at one. <laughs> the Valley of the Dolls follows three women struggling to forge careers in the entertainment industry, each of them descending into barbiturate addiction, quote, dolls, being a slang term for depressant pills or, quote, downers. Although... I think uppers, too, though, because she talks about taking dolls to, you know, make her spark. Those women would be Barbara Perkins playing Ann Wells, Patty Duke playing Neely O'Hara, and Sharon Tate as Jennifer North. Barbara Perkins was from Peyton Place, the TV series, which is sort of another weird connection to this. Patty Duke was a child star who had the Patty Duke show. She won an Oscar for The Miracle Worker, which I believe was in the early 60s. But this was her spring breakers of the day. Oh, yeah. This is very much the same thing. She wanted to shed that image of a child star of the wholesome girl next door. She does this sort of thing. Sharon Tate had been in a few things and would be in a few more things, was sort of new to being a star. She wasn't really that known yet. They offered her part to Raquel Welch, I believe, who turned it down. Because she had already played sort of the dumb sex pot before and thought this was like typecasting. Yeah. Sharon Tate, though, just a stunning beauty on screen. Yeah. (laughs) Has to be pointed out. It has to. It's imperative. Yes. The first thing that you see on screen when the movie starts, it says, The producers wish to state that any similarity between any person's living or dead and the characters portrayed in the film you are about to see is purely coincidental and not intended. Meaning... Bullshit. Yeah, this is 100% based on people. So, Neely is supposed to be sort of like Judy Garland. I don't think that it's based off of a real story, because I think the people don't really know each other, but she's modeled off off of Judy Garland. I think Anne is supposed to be how Jacqueline Susan saw herself, because Jacqueline Susan was like sort of a peripherally famous wannabe actress at certain points that got mixed up in different things. And... Jennifer is supposed to be like Marilyn Monroe, although I think it's a little unfair because I I think Marilyn Monroe was definitely very talented and very funny. and had like a charisma, which I think they're kind of saying Jennifer is lacking. Yeah, I think sort of the the idea of being known for the body and also the the drug use 
is sort of the main similarity there. But in terms of, I mean, Marilyn Monroe had like a big career and was a huge star. Oh, yeah. Which is something that Jennifer does not really even come close to. As I mentioned, Susan Hayward is based off of uh, Ethel Merman. And there's some other stuff, too, with the male characters. I don't really think it's that important, but it's just funny that they put that message up at the front of the film, even though <laughs> right. I think most people knew that they were supposedly based off of real people. You've got to climb Mount Everest to reach the Valley of the Dogs. It's a brutal climb to reach that peak. You stand there, waiting for the rush of exhilaration, but it doesn't come. You're alone. And the feeling of loneliness is overpowering. I never meant to start that climb. I took the first step the day I left New England and headed for New York. It wasn't easy to leave that wonderful old house. My grandparents lived there and their grandparents before them. It was standing during the Revolution. George Washington didn't sleep there, but he did dip a bucket of water from our well. I can still see them standing there waving. Aunt Amy, Mama, and Willie. Poor Willie. He didn't know I was leaving his life forever. I'll never forget the night I told them I was going to New York. They said it was a dreadful place for a vacation. I announced I was going to work there. The movie opens in the idyllic, snow-covered New England. We have recent Radcliffe graduate Ann Wells leaving town. She is going to be hired as a secretary at a theatrical agency which represents Helen Lawson, a cutthroat Broadway diva. So we see her heading to New York. She's leaving a boyfriend named Willie behind. Oh, poor Willie. I liked the whole thing where she was talking about him pinning her and how they were like pre-engaged. I was thinking of Cedar Rapids. Oh, she's like rolling her eyes while this is happening. Remember in Cedar Rapids with like Ed Helms, he's like, I'm basically pre-engaged. Right, right. John C. Riley's like, if I was pre-engaged, I'd be pre-porking the shit out of everybody. (laughs) Or whatever the fuck he says. Yeah, well. (laughs) Pre-engaged. Willie, I mean, years are going by and he thinks that this is still going to happen. Yeah. That's like the part of the movie you don't see. I mean, he only gets mentioned at the very beginning, but I felt like it was worth writing down just because I was like, yeah, we all know Willie. (laughs) Some of us have been a Willie. Absolutely. (laughs) Anne is the most boring of the three women, as I mentioned, probably based a little bit on Jacqueline Susan herself. She's She's centered and the least scandalous of the three. The movie feels like it's about her when it starts off, but she definitely has the least trajectory as a character. Yeah, she's the opening and the ending yeah, of the film. Right. And she is sort of the centered one, where a lot of it seems to be happening around her. Mm-hmm. Anne's hometown is insane. It's like one of those areas that seems like it's been that way since These colonial times. People in New England that just cannot get over the Paul American Revere. Revolution. And <laughs> yeah, George Washington took water from this well. Yeah, that kind of bullshit. Yeah. Anne arrives in New York as an innocent, pure as the driven snow, which I thought was sort of oh yeah in your face as it's a blizzard going on. That's right. 
even the way they show it, it looks like at one point during one of the transition scenes it's like pills like the inside of the yeah. pills and then it kind of transitions into the snow this movie is mostly known for like the crazy shit in it the choreography the fashion the music it's the time capsule of the evolving 60s I think, as we've pointed out, it really captures a moment of change. There is a traditional feel and look to a lot of this movie, and yet it does touch on all those subjects I previously mentioned, mm-hmm. which were sort of taboo in American films. And this was like really pushing the idea of like an R rating, not in the same way as like Bonnie and Clyde, but in its own way. Oh, yeah. Anne's first task at this place where she gets work is to take some contracts to Helen Lawson on Broadway to sign. And this is a daunting first task. It is. And just the way the movie takes us from sort of this like town in New England to New York and then we're like going to California. But I mean, this version of New York, we talked about before, like the fairy tale version of New York from Wes Anderson's Royal Tenenbaums and how that didn't really exist. But this feels closer to that than what we see in like the 70s crime movies in New York. You know what I mean? This doesn't feel like the the dark gritty New York until I, I unless that's where uh, Patty Duke is at the end of the movie. I think that this feels sort of reminiscent of Mad Men. I think that the '60s probably was a lot different than the '70s in New York. Yeah, for sure. Helen Lawson is this larger than life Broadway star who's got a reputation for being difficult. So her boss sending her there first is sort of like a trial by fire. When she arrives at the theater we get our first taste of neely o'hara the up-and-comer a potential threat to lawson it's the same old story in hollywood forever and ever you have the younger oh yeah woman coming up got a certain shine to her unlike ann neely is sort of the whole movie really yes the movie revolves around her trajectory as a star she's got the biggest problems she kind of moves the story forward yes even though I think most people would probably say that they find Sharon Tate and Barbara Perkins more attractive than Patty Duke in this movie. I don't mm-hmm. know. I just find myself so in on Patty Duke. Her whole look, like her hair, just the wild antics and attitude. Yeah, the attitude is definitely a big turn on, I would say. Just <laughs> being horrible to people. She's not even like that horrible. It's just yeah. that she's so... She is at times, but it's more just like that Uh, driven attitude that's like, I'm a star and I have to do this. I think her post-rehab stint, like the antics that she pulls and like basically breaking up (laughs) Anne and... Well, yeah. I mean, she does do horrible things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, (laughs) I mean, she's such a complicated character. She is. Especially when you put her up against the other two. And she's the one that has to take all the risks, and I know Patty Duke had a hard time dealing with the fallout of this movie. She thought she was terrible in it, and it, it took decades, really, for her to warm up to the movie and oh, sort of wow. embrace that people did like it. But she's the one that has to take all the risks. Absolutely. Anne is basically a bore, even though... Yeah, she's a blank slate, and Jennifer is sort of just this kind-hearted nothing. Yeah. I enjoy Sharon Tate, and... I think that her story is tragic in the movie, and I, I'm entertained by it, but she's not taking big risks like right. this. This, I mean, the Neely O'Hara character is insane. Oh, yeah. 
she has to do all of, i mean not even just like the big performance numbers but all of the crazy acting out that she has to do yeah and has to deliver some of the most insane lines of the movie right probably the things that were pulled as quotes in negative reviews that patty duke had to read and just be like embarrassed meanwhile that we she's like the one doing it pulling them out in our positive reviews <laughs> Helen fears that the newcomer Neely will upstage her, so she wants Anne's new boss to pressure Neely to quit their upcoming show. Anne immediately sours on show business after <laughs> seeing this display of cruelty. But her boss's business partner, the young and handsome Lion Burke, dissuades her from quitting the agency. Next up, we meet Jennifer North in a pretty brief scene. She's this beautiful, buxom chorus girl with limited talent but a killer bod. <laughs> as they say in the biz she spends time with older boyfriends the first time we meet her she's having to endure sort of wisecracks about her top yeah. being top heavy no one paying attention to her headdress because of her tits whatever <laughs> and I think that the sort of muted performance you see from Sharon Tate especially early in the film sort of fits with that like a woman who's had to deal with that since puberty. Definitely. She's just sort of like, it washes over and her. just sort of endures. Yeah. You know? In this time period when standing up for yourself might cost you your job and all that stuff, she just sort of endures it in a stoic way. Right. Yeah, but if you take that song out, I've got nothing. Nothing but a few lines in the first act. I'm sorry, Neely. We have no alternative. Don't listen to him, hon. He's protecting old Ironsides. This was her idea. She can't stand the competition. Let's skip the personalities, hmm? Don't worry, honey. You've got a run-of-the-play contract. You mean they pay me 200 bucks a week just to sit in my dressing room? They've got to, Miss O'Hara. If that's the way you want it. Personally, I'd walk away with dignity. There'll always be another show and a better part, providing you have talent. Talent? You know damn well she has talent. Believe me, Miss O'Hara, by next week, every producer in town will be after you. It gives you stature to walk out on the Helen Lawson show. Honey, don't listen to them. They want you to quit so they can save 200 bucks a week. You better call your agent. I know her agent. I can tell you exactly what he'll say. Take whatever crumbs are offered. He's not about to give up his lousy 10%. If she were my client, I'd advise her to leave the show with dignity. Well, he's not going to get his lousy 10%. Because I won't settle for crumbs. I'll leave this stinking show with dignity. The long and the short of it is that Anne and her boss and some of the other behind-the-scenes people do get Neely to quit. But almost right away, Lion lands her an appearance on a telethon, which turns out to be a life-changing event. Oh, yes. And... We'll sort of address this as we go, but everything in this movie is at like a breakneck pace. It's insane. Everything just keeps rushing at you, and time just moves very quickly. And it seems like major elements of the plot just don't happen on screen. <laughs> yeah, they just sort of... You're like, oh, it is like Mad Men. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, an episode ended, and then they pick you up, and all this shit happened in between, right. and you're like, oh, okay. That's just how things were in the 60s, yeah. apparently. Neely swept up in it all rather quickly... Because of the telethon performance, she gets a nightclub act. And this is where we sort of figure out, I guess, that everyone is friends in the movie. Right. That's sort of one of the main things that they don't really establish that well, is that these three women are supposed to be friends. Yeah. Well, they become friends 
in this at some period. point yeah that we don't see <laughs> and kind of are supportive of each other in terms of driving their careers forward it seems like yeah at, at times so they're all hanging out at this nightclub we have neely and her pal her guy pal mel oh yeah and then we have Anne and Lion together, and they see Jennifer. She's there with one of her old ghoul boyfriends. Yeah, I mean that was that's quite a scene. You're <laughs> like, oh, okay, she's just dating this like rich old guy. Yeah, Oof. But Jennifer's intrigued by Tony Poehler. He's the nightclub singer that night. Kind of has like a Dean Martin feel to him. And Tony is under the watchful eye of his sister Miriam, played by Lee Grant in what can only be described as a ghostly mesmerizing performance <laughs> that is just almost from another movie and it's so weird yeah yeah that this is one of those things her performance as miriam the sister and the way that she delivers some of these lines and some of what these lines are i feel like that's sort of the deciding point on whether you're in on this movie or not if like you find this character entertaining and you're in on it then i think you're good to go the rest of the way if you're not really like entertained by this weirdo character that she's playing then you might be missing the fun i think probably yeah it, it i mean it was never even a thought for me that miriam wasn't working because when she sees that her brother is intrigued by this voluptuous jennifer in the front row one of the first things she says is at night all cats are gray <laughs> and you're just like wait what yikes friend of yours? I don't know. I never saw her before. But I'm going to see her again. Tony, how many times do I have to tell you? At night, all cats are gray. Ah, you worry too much. And it's an old proverb, meaning basically in the dark, physical appearance is unimportant. But it's such a weird thing to say. Yes, it is. <laughs> At night, all cats are gray. And you're like, okay, well, wait a minute. Now, obviously... 50 plus years of film history have passed since 1967 you might be more accustomed to weird off-the-wall movies i don't think in a mainstream hollywood movie you're having people just randomly say things like that unexplained out of the blue (laughs) where like no one else is talking like that you're like wait a minute what (laughs) and then the movie just keeps moving and you're like well what's going on what is a cat wait what Lion and Anne are hitting it off while Neely's career starts taking off. She's in a relationship with Mel. Jennifer lives alone. And she's dealing with a demanding and rather unsupportive mother over the phone. That's right. Who always is calling her collect and begging for money. Yeah. And we never does... see or actually hear her. That's true. But it does seem like, man, what a horrible existence. I don't know how successful you are in this role, but it doesn't seem like wildly successful no then you're being asked to send money yeah uh, and like sustain a life in new york city yeah i think neely is the flashy tragic character but jennifer's whole life seems very tragic definitely she hints at it later in conversations with tony a more quiet sadness there yeah just sort of like my father died we had no money so i could never really get shoes and everyone kept track of what i ate because we didn't have any money Right. She just like sort of drops things like that into conversations. <laughs> Tony's just like, well, this is fun. <laughs> As Matt alluded to, one of the things that sort of dominates the first third of the movie is these musical performances. It's not really like a musical in the sense that like people stop what they're doing and just start singing in real life. It's right. all within the 
confines of show business. Like we're watching performances. People yes. are aware that one person's singing, whatever. But the one that just entertains me to no end because it's so campy and ridiculous. And Is it Tony's song? No, it's Helen Lawson's when she just starts singing, I'll plant my own tree. And you're oh, like, yeah. what is happening right now? Right. Because Lion's proclamation, he's sitting next to Anne, he confides to her. It sort of encapsulates the absurdity of this movie when he's like, off stage, I hate her, but on stage, I'm madly in love with her. And they show her on stage. She's a woman of like 45 years old. Yeah. Badly lip syncing to someone else's voice. I mean, that's not what's supposed to be happening in the movie itself, but we as an audience, that's what we're seeing. Are viewing that? And those like plastic color shapes are around her, yeah, and she's yeah. doing those broad movements with her arm. There's not like great choreography, and you're like, This is showbiz? You're in love with her? <laughs> like, Wait, what? <laughs> I know. This is like what the people want. Even Anne's face, which I don't think is supposed to be selling it as a joke, is just sort of like, confused by this like what are you talking about later that night Anne and lion have sex and there is the subtle suggestion of a little nudity not really but you know sort of the outline of it this was a time where this stuff was not very common yeah and there isn't really like a lot of nudity per se in the film uh suggestive yeah there's like hints of it right little brief partial type stuff but just even the idea of all of these characters engaging in premarital sex like pretty willingly and quickly is sort of weird for this time, too. Well, they definitely are laying that on in the movie, though, even. I mean, <laughs> when Anne, this apartment building that she moves into or whatever, it's basically like, we don't allow Women only, men yeah. here. And Jennifer and Anne, basically, with Anne, it's definitely considerably a bigger part of the movie. But there's parts where both of them are talking about don't you want to marry me? And the guys yeah. are just like, yeah, not really. Well, not- I think Jennifer does get married to Tony. Like, Yeah, yeah, but there is a scene earlier on it, because they talk about how Miriam doesn't want him to get married. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now that Anne and Lion are entrenched in their relationship, we see a montage of Neely's rise in fame. She marries Mel. There's a lot of dancing and costumes and harmonizing and then her possible... Introduction to Pills. Which is a hilarious scene. It's like fucking all that jazz. Her instructor is basically Roy Scheider or whatever. Yeah. And just like giving her drugs. And the camera pans over to Mel and he's just like shaking his head no. <laughs> I know. They don't actually approach the drug stuff as realistically and as gritty as like a Scorsese or something would. It's uh, sort of cartoonish. <laughs> no one's getting their arm cut off. Yeah. And I just think that that was sort of a product of naivete. I, I imagine that a lot of the people weren't really familiar with like how to do this on screen. They didn't even really know. I'm sure a lot of the people involved in this movie probably did take pills, but they just didn't really know what they could get away with, what it was supposed to look like. Yeah. There just hadn't really been a lot of drug material in mainstream films and so they just sort of present it as like an afterthought even though that's what the title comes from and that's sort of the whole thing of the movie they're just sort of like oh yeah this is happening now out of nowhere not a big close-up on it even (laughs) just sort of like right happens in two seconds like oh yeah this is starting the the pills in this movie don't look particularly appetizing either they're like (laughs) giant red (laughs) like just look disgusting 
Neely's becoming a star on the nightclub circuit. Everything happens very fast. She's on the verge of moving to California. And again, it doesn't seem fun. It's like the sequences here are definitely a little bit more joyful than pretty much anything that comes. But they make it look like work. Yeah. Like constant work. They're taking the nightclub act co-headlined with Tony, as Tony and Jennifer are now fully a couple, much to the chagrin of Tony's sister Miriam. There's a lot of cartoonish dialogue. I do enjoy when Jennifer is like, my mother says I should have held out. (laughs) That old thing on the park bench. Oh, yeah. Secretly, Miriam knows that Tony has the hereditary condition Huntington's Correa, but she never even tells Tony, and so it's like this big secret, which seems crazy. I can say this. I never was expecting some hereditary degenerative disease (laughs) to be a major part of this movie. Well, they have to come up with like literally every tragic thing you can think of and put it into this two-hour movie. Particularly into Jennifer's storyline. Yeah. Meanwhile, Lion resists Anne's wish to marry... And there's some discussion of the scandal of premarital relations, especially when they go back to New England and Anne Mm -hmm. doesn't want to stay in the house with him. Yeah, this is a reverse Halloween 3 situation. She's like, I'm going to get you a cab to a hotel room. But then almost as like a temper tantrum, Lion just abruptly runs off to London, stunning Anne. And he breaks up with her over a letter, basically, that he leaves at a hotel. Because she wouldn't let him sleep with her one night. (laughs) That's what it seems like. I I don't know if that's what they're implying or what. But he basically is like, all right, I'm out of here then, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) You get the sense that this topic of marriage, I think maybe it's come up one too many times. Yeah. And Lion's just like, all right, enough. (laughs) You can relate to that. Sure. Anne is even more distraught when her mother dies, which is the whole reason they go to New England in the first place, but then they don't even really clarify when that happens. They just sort of brush by it. Right. (laughs) Things are not going well for her at the moment, but that will only be temporary because it's time for another whirlwind of a young woman swept up into fame as almost immediately upon her return to New York City, Anne's poise and natural beauty attract the attention of her boss's new client, Kevin Gilmore, who hires her to promote his line of cosmetics in television and print ads. And this is one of those things where he just gets a look at her and is like, all right, it's you, honey. Kevin, it's like, I don't know if he's just like the first one to notice. I I mean, it's a bad look for (laughs) her boss who works in the business. And then this ends up working out that, I mean, it seems like this commercial series is successful. Well, he seemed more concerned with just having a secretary. That's true. Whatever her dreams and ambitions are, it's not (laughs) his problem. I need someone to take notes for me because I'll be getting too drunk at dinner. (laughs) You can gingerly sip your sherry and take notes and tell me what the meeting was about. It is very much like Mad Men. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, Kevin, what a move. This is why it's great to be a rich white dude because you can just be like, hey, how about I put you in my commercial and we'll give you this whole career. And now we're dating. Yeah, really. Even though I'm like 50 years old and you're 20. Yeah. Another artsy, fashionable, over-the-top montage, some iconic imagery of the different cosmetic campaigns and commercials, time just flying by. And then we see Jennifer at home in California now watching Anne in a commercial. And I just wrote down, Sharon Tate, breathtaking. Absolutely. Looks unbelievable in this scene. Yeah. Just sort of lounging on the living room floor, watching 
the Grammys and the commercials and whatnot. That's right. I would say that a big portion of this movie is her eye makeup, which is crazy and looks amazing. Yeah, and they do that thing with her hair where it's almost like, seems like it's like pasted to her face, you know? Yeah. I will say all three of the women are insanely gorgeous. Absolutely. I mean, we haven't really talked about it much, but Anne is definitely a, a stunner. <laughs> we haven't talked about it much, meanwhile. <laughs> all right. So instead of like 50% of the time, we got to push it up to 60% of the time. It's just talking about what they look like. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's glowing commentary. Yeah. And I love them all for different reasons. Absolutely. Really. Anne almost has like a, a Trudy Campbell type look to her. Just oh, that, yeah. You know. I definitely thought that a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which and, is up my alley. Yeah, that's another Mad Men reference. Alison Brie. Jennifer's mother is still an unseen negative and constant influence in her life on the, over the phone. Miriam is living with her and Tony, and Miriam is running the show. Hey, you know something? I've never carried you across the threshold before. Oh! <laughs> Thanks, I need it. Hold on, hon. Oh. Have a hard day? A brute. Sit down, will you? I might as well give it to you all at once. The studio dropped my option. So what? There are lots of other studios. You never have let them put you in westerns. You're a romantic lead. Sure, sure. Look! You're a singer. You can always go back to nightclubs. I don't want to go back to nightclubs. Don't worry about it. Will you do me a favor? Will you just not worry about it? He doesn't want to go back to nightclubs. He wants to make pictures. I'm going to heat up the lasagna. Tony's career hits a snag, and there's sort of a memorable conversation between the three of them that ends with Miriam just announcing, I'm going to heat up the lasagna, and then the scene cuts. (laughs) But, I mean, she needed a quick subject change. Yeah, because she's carrying around this secret. Neither Jennifer or Tony know about this hereditary condition that he might have and how this could lead to him getting this disease and then dying. And it's sort of this big thing overhanging. But yeah, the whole lasagna line is so funny. And I know it gets like laughs at screenings and stuff, but I sort of just buy it, though. It's sort of that poetic energy that the character has. She's so weird. Oh, I know. And even Jennifer at one point brings up, like, is she jealous? And I wasn't sure what that meant. Like, did she mean, like, incestuous? Like, there's this whole weird vibe going on. I think you knew what it meant. Yeah, I just, I don't know. And having her just end a conversation with the lasagna thing is just too perfect. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Neely wins a Grammy and crosses paths with Anne and Kevin Gilmore at the ceremony. The Grammys were a little bit different, by the way. A little bit of a different show, but I was like, is this going to be like a Star is Born situation? Mel just stumbles up on the stage completely drunk and pissing himself. I did wonder, were we supposed to be like cringing with embarrassment when she just sort of is accepting her Grammy and then starts promoting like some movie? Plugging her, like shamelessly plugging And then her, people are like yeah. laughing at yeah. it. I didn't really know what the vibe was of that. And then like... In reality, now, when somebody wins an award, they're allowed to just stand there by themselves and say whatever they want. Meanwhile, that guy was just standing over her shoulder being like, shut up. The Toastmaster General. He's like, (laughs) get out. This is my show. So now everyone is in California, even if it's only temporary for Anne at this point. Anne and Kevin have dinner the next night with Jennifer and Tony, and there's an awkward run-in with Lion. 
who is now back from England after running away. What amount of money does Lion come from? I mean, it well, just... wasn't his like father or something the original per- or uncle was like the original business partner with Anne's boss. Yeah, yeah. At I, that he, place. he may have gone to Oxford. Some... Yeah, he did say that. Yeah. He's sort of just a rich douchebag. That's right. But the one thing I noted here, so time has gone by. I know it's only been a few minutes in podcast time, but I think it's supposed to be two years. Well, it's only a few minutes in the movie, too. Yeah, but at one point when the commercial starts that Jennifer's watching, yeah. they say we're celebrating two years of the new Gillian girl or whatever okay, they right. call her. So she's had a successful run as this model or whatever, here. yeah. And I was just thinking, like, okay, so this time's gone by. She was begging this guy to marry her. He runs away. They haven't seen each other. They run into each other at this restaurant in California. Just the juiciness of an awkward, random run-in in in 1967. Yeah. Because, again, we say it all the time, no internet, no No. cell phones, no Facebook. You have no connection to these people. And then just out of the blue, a run-in like this? Right. Unbelievable. Absolutely. (laughs) You can't even recreate that now. (laughs) And it's such a good position to be in if you're like a lion to pull the type of move that he does just to like, you know, get himself back. He's like, oh, did you read my book? And she's like, no. And he's like, well, I dedicated it to you. What do you think about that? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, you know, she's like, this is Kevin. He like doesn't even like look at him, basically. Just some old geezer. Eyes fixed on Anne the whole time. Kevin's like, oh, nice to meet you. (laughs) And then we never see Kevin again because, you know, things just happen in this movie. Time moves on. Afterwards, he was probably like driving Anne back to like the hotel or whatever. He's just like. Boy, that lion guy sure seemed like a great guy. (laughs) Just an idiot. Yeah. Jennifer seeks out Neely, sniffing around for work for poor Tony, who has sort of been pushed out of movies now, and his career is not going as well as Neely's now that they're both in California. Well, he was miscast a little bit. And that's when we start to get a clearer picture of Neely's world. She's making films, but she's also a drunk. Even worse, there's the pills, or as she calls them, the dolls. Something that just exists in this universe, in this right. universe only, is this phrase of calling pills dolls. That never really caught on. There's a lot to unpack in this whole little scene here. It's a, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. First, you have Jennifer showing up, and Mel is just sitting there pounding away at a typewriter. Neely's not even around. Jennifer just starts taking her shirt off, yeah. and she's got a bikini top on. If this happened to me, if I was Mel, I'd be like, oh no, what's happening? Well, I tell you, for sure I'd stop typing. <laughs> I don't know what he's typing. I, Mel, do you want to give up? We all know it ain't happening, whatever it is you're trying to do. <laughs> Neely's spending all of her time with a fashion designer named Ted Casablanca. And in this sequence here, we get the usage of some homophobic slurs, which is sort of iconic in this movie. <laughs> That's true. And yeah. sort of the things that jump out the most, because it's just so crazy and weird. And something that, again... They weren't really doing in 1967 right. in these types of movies, and it's sort of jarring in a weird way. Definitely, and it's like, I don't know what the right way to say it is, but we we have this happen a lot where we watch these older movies, and they say words that you wouldn't even put in a movie now, but the way they say these things, it, it just seems so comical. Yeah. Neely shows up, and there's this crazy tension between Mel and Neely. They're sort of fighting about everything. Neely embarrasses Mel in front of Jennifer, who sort of scampers off. She'll be home any minute. She's with Ted Casablanca trying on new clothes. Only in Hollywood do women faint because some queer deigns to design their clothes. Maybe you could put in a good word for Tony. 
me. She doesn't listen to me. I'm the last person to ask her. She's changed, Jen. She, she starts at 5.30 in the morning, still punchy from last night's sleeping pills. So she takes a red pill to pep herself up, and at midnight, she's still flying. I try to talk to her, it's like a brick wall. Well, I guess that's one of the drawbacks of being a big star. Hey, you know what these are? One month's check she has to sign. All the dough she makes, we still had to borrow to pay the income tax. Attorney, agent, manager, secretary, doctor, maid, masseuse, voice coach. She sings like a bird. Psychiatrist. Psychiatrist? Oh, yeah. The studio wants her to find out why she's so exhausted. They say they think it must be emotional conflicts. Conflicts my foot. There aren't enough hours in the day. The head shrinker says she's insecure. She needs mass love. Maybe I'm lucky I don't have any talent. Hi, Jen. Mel, get me some skim milk, will you? Want something? I'll have a Coke. Jen, I don't know what I'm going to do about Mel. He's changed so. He just can't seem to get with it. What do you mean, Neely? He's gotten you lots of good publicity. That was the studio. They told him to butt out. They don't even want him on the set. They say he makes me self-conscious. Ted Casablanca says he's the joke of the town. I wouldn't pay any attention to that. You know how bitchy fags can be. He's not even 30, and he's made over a million bucks. Here we go. Mel, hand me my bag, will you? Thank you. Well, I've lost five pounds already. These pills are really great, Jen. They kill your appetite. Only trouble is they pep me up so much I can't sleep. Well, what nice fattening thing did you tell Arlene to make tonight? Arlene quit this morning. She said you yelled at her. That's uh, three cooks in three months, Neely. She was a louse anyway. You said yourself she was taking home all the booze. Other people have loyal help. Why can't we? You don't know how to talk to them. That's your job. You better start running this house properly. I'm not the butler, Neely. You're not the breadwinner, either. I'm afraid I better be running along. See you soon. Bye, Jen. That was a rotten thing to say in front of Jenny. Why? She knows the facts of life. You two sit around on your rumps all day while Tony and I slave. Maybe I better get off my rump and go back to New York. I can always get my old job back. Suit yourself. I'm too tired to argue. I've got to take a shower and get back to Ted Casablanca's. You know, you're spending a lot more time than necessary with that fag. Ted Casablanca is not a fag. And I'm the dame who can prove it. Thanks for making up my mind. I should have left a long time ago, but I kept remembering the old Neely. She was quite a girl. Now you're just like all the rest of them. Success is too big for you. If you ask me, my success is too big for you. It's great. It's so much drama. Neely is just saying insane things. Well, she's things. saying things at... She's subtweeting Jennifer <laughs> because she's saying things at Mel that are also about Jennifer. 
like I'm the breadwinner. You don't do yeah, anything. Yeah, but like you, you're a no value. That's true, but that's not a that's not a slam to Jennifer in 1967. Well, that, Mel not... calls it out though. He's like, "Did you have to say that in front of her?" Well, yeah, because he just about fe- he feels emasculated. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, he was the hottest chick ever was sitting there, and he's <laughs> <laughs> she's like, "You and your little baby dick can't satisfy me." <laughs> Before you showed up, she was taking her clothes off. Now she's running away. Really? Yeah, I don't think that that's a slam of Jennifer at that point okay. in 1967 right. because there's really. In the eyes of the world at that I time, there'd think be Jennifer was reacting to it. A no, no, she's just, it's just uh, it'd be she like can't be around conflict. It's like how I am when I come over to your house. It's oh, like right. I gotta run out of here because it's getting weird and yeah. tense because <laughs> Lindsay and I are arguing. <laughs> but yeah, just about some dumb bullshit or because, whatever. Well, like another order of Blu-ray showed up, even <laughs> though I'm under like strict rules not to order anymore. <laughs> oh God. I think if you're reading that into it, you're you're coming at it from too modern of a perspective. Right. I don't think it, the implication is that Jennifer should be embarrassed at this point. That's okay. just not how things were in the 60s. All right. Fair. Neely, of course, is definitely the type of person that would take a shot at Jennifer or whoever. When Absolutely. She's like, oh, you're both sitting on your rumps all day or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But she's only really going after Mel. Yeah. Because she just hates Mel at this <laughs> point. Because she hates herself. Right, right. She's already in the throes of addiction, which, of course, the movie does not really do a great job of really explaining. But right. I mean, Mel does talk about it. He's like, you know, I I still remember the girl you used to be, but you basically haven't been her in years. And Yeah, this know. is the disintegration of their marriage. It just all happens abruptly. Very quickly. Just over. Anne and Lion can't stay away from each other and rendezvous. Jennifer learns of Tony's illness when he just starts falling all over the place. Yeah, although I do like that sequence because it's Neely and Ted walking around and they see Tony and Jennifer and she's like, oh God, he's going to ask me to help him with a role or something, yeah. let's run away. Pretty brutal. She she yeah. definitely is like ruthless. Absolutely. Jennifer starts in with the pills and the booze herself to deal with this, but she's also pregnant. Yikes. Which is something that is complicated because now at this point, Tony is only headed in one direction there's not going to be a normal future anymore that's right and of course they've talked about the recessive gene for yeah. this disease neely gets divorced while jennifer and miriam place tony into a sanitarium as his health declines pretty rapidly because everything in this movie is rapid that's right it all happens very quickly oh yeah miriam then essentially pimps jennifer out to a french art film director <laughs> Interested mostly in softcore porno to pay for the mounting medical costs of Tony's sanitarium stay. And I love the meeting between Jennifer and this director when Miriam's there and they're discussing it. And she's like, what kind of director are you? And he's saying like art film. And he's, she's like, well, I've seen some of your stuff. It's pretty raw. And then she says, quote, I mean, French subtitles over a bare bottom doesn't necessarily make it art. Well, that depends who you're asking. Yeah, my immediate thought was, well, I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) And it also depends on who's bare bottom. I mean, Sharon Tate, I I would say that's art. Absolutely. No question. (laughs) Neely continues to spiral, earning a bad reputation because of the pill intake and erratic behavior. Mm -hmm. They say I'm difficult. They say I'm drunk even when I'm not. Sure, I take dolls. I gotta get some sleep. I gotta get up at five o'clock in the morning and sparkle, Neely, sparkle. I love that scene where she shows up to Anne's house 
and she sort of lays it all out in a way that I think is sort of still poignant and relevant today the whole sparkle neely sparkle thing where she's basically like oh, yeah when men don't want to do a scene they're heroic when women don't want to do it they're a problem definitely and she sort of just launches into this whole thing which is weird because at the time in 1967 i don't know that they were necessarily meaning that to be like some sort of a feminist thing i they may have very well meant like look at this fucking nutcase <laughs> but the line holds up yeah that. like the truth of it though is She's being completely real, and everything she's saying is legitimate. I'm not like saying that to trash the novel or the the screenwriters. Maybe they did mean it that way. Mm. I, I don't know how people would have perceived it at that point. I don't know. But although positive feminist message aside, Neely does seem like a problem. Well, yeah. I mean, she's out of control, sure. and she's obnoxious and taking shots at Anne and taking shots at Lion and just sort of generally being horrible. <laughs> Anne and Lion and Neely all seem professionally and personally intertwined now. Lion's sort of trying to manage Neely's career. Yeah, did Anne just kind of, she's done with the whole acting career at this point? I, I can't really tell. Well, I guess she wasn't really acting. She that's was just true. doing that. But now that she's Model. ditched yeah. Kevin, like I guess that's over. Yeah, her career sort of just fades out of the movie. Like right. She's just sort of around now. Yeah. Neely is officially with fashion designer Ted Casablanca, with whom she cheated on Mel with. Ted is mostly rumored to be gay. Doesn't actually seem like he is. No, and he's uh, the rumors don't seem to bother him. But it is possible that they're implying that he's like bisexual, but they just didn't come out and say it like yeah, that. Yeah, that could be. In this movie, I I don't know. I'm not really up on what the whole story is like what it was like in the book or whatever but they bring it up a lot <laughs> yeah well at the time if you were a well-dressed male that was questionable neely casually reveals that jennifer got an abortion and then went to paris to make nudies as she calls them and then it transitions from that into neely throwing a pity party for herself uh-huh yes <laughs> which is sort of funny she's like here's some horrible things that happened to our mutual friend but it's so much worse for me, and yeah, I'm going to tell really. you why. <laughs> a lot of action happens off screen, as we've mentioned, but the thing that I kept coming back to was, what if this movie was directed by Martin Scorsese? Mm-hmm. Because in a lot of ways, Valley of the Dolls is sort of structured like a Goodfellas or a, a Casino you or know, a Wolf of Wall Street or something. Her wandering down the city streets or whatever kind of there's like a taxi driver vibe <laughs> i just think that this is the sort of stuff that scorsese does really well which is that fast pace over a Definitely. long period of yeah. time and a lot of things happening where it sort of feels montagey but it works because it's his style this movie doesn't quite have that there's a lot more start stops to it it doesn't have that same sort of flow as like a scorsese movie right but it would be interesting to see his take on this material I don't really think that's ever going to happen, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, they just announced, like, Scorsese doing a remake of uh, Valley yeah, of the yeah, Dolls. Yeah, a reimagining of Valley of the Dolls. Neely comes home to find her new and supposedly gay husband naked in the pool with another woman. <laughs> Which he is, like, pointing out she doesn't look like a boy. She freaks out, obviously, but Ted blames her <laughs> and those damn dolls. Classic spin around. And then as he says... 
Tennealy, that little whore makes me feel nine feet tall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just great lines. Neely's career is in tatters, and her second marriage is sabotaged. She's quickly replaced in her new movie when she goes on a bender. Lion is now her agent, and he's trying to talk sense into her. And she will eventually end up in the same sanitarium as Tony, but not before a desperate and sad solo escape to San Francisco. Yikes. Which is just a whole lost weekend little moment in this movie that Boy, is so have weird. I had some nights like this in my life. She's at a bar playing her own songs on the jukebox. That's the saddest thing in this whole movie. There yeah. is nothing sadder than playing your own song on a jukebox. <laughs> Not the breast cancer, the suicide, right. none of it. <laughs> playing your own songs on the jukebox. She's like, I'm Neely O'Hara. I'm the one singing this. And he's like, what are you talking about? That dame can sing. You sound like a frog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some pretty cool dudes hanging out in this bar, I got to say. Also, while up in San Francisco, Neely happens to stumble by a somewhat disreputable movie house where Jennifer's French nudie film is playing. This spurs Neely to go on a walk down a bad area, and she says, Boobies, 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 nothing but boobies. Who needs them? I did great without them. (laughs) As if she doesn't have boobs. I know, I I was going to say, there's some scenes where she's wearing some skimpy outfits. She seems busty enough. Yeah, not like Jennifer, Whoa, but... Oh, come on. <laughs> Jennifer's from, like, another planet. Boobies, boobies, boobies. Nothing but boobies. Who needs them? I did great without them. Neely then wakes up with a strange man in a horrible room. <laughs> Doesn't have any idea who he is or what's going this on. This is such a funny, like, reverse gender role of how you would normally see this happen. This is definitely usually like a dude, and then like this was all just some scheme by the woman to like dig into his wallet when he's passed out. But this is like the opposite. Yeah, they're he's like, like robbing her. She just like hooked up with literally like the trashiest dude. It reminds me of some stuff from Days of Wine and Roses with like Lee Remick's character. But yeah, it seems like it's its own movie. Yeah. They just cram this into like a one minute scene. Right. And you're just like, wait, what? <laughs> So she has an overdose. She wakes up at a hospital. Who finds her? I don't know. And how do Anne and Lion track her down? Yeah, I know. I don't know how any of this happens. But they're at her bedside when she wakes up, and they're like, all right, well, you definitely have to go to the sanitarium now. You are out of control. you got to dry out. And she has a complete meltdown. (laughs) Yeah. Just throwing, like, a tantrum. She's like, I need my dolls. I need my dolls. <laughs> and they're like, stop trying to make dolls a thing. It's not happening. Yeah, Just say pills. pills. <laughs> In France, we see a screening of Jennifer's movie. It's just like her and the director and some a couple other people. I'm like, around. holy shit. This is the movie I want to see. Yeah, it's fairly glorious. <laughs> just rolling around nude in bed with yeah. a man speaking French. I know. Everything you need in a movie. But she's just desperate to go back to America to see Tony. And so when Fox offers to buy her contract, she's supposed to get half of the money, but she has to negotiate like a smaller cut just to be able to go and get out of this. this horrible dude. And it's implied that they seem to have a romantic relationship, or at least, Uh, I don't know if romantic's the right word. Yeah, he's (laughs) certainly leveraging his position. Because he, yeah, doesn't he say, like, we can talk about this back at the apartment? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I know. And it is, like, sad. 
Jennifer is still kind of carrying this torch for Tony, even though he's really catatonic at this point for the most yeah. part. I don't know any sensible person. It's just like, okay, look, we're not saying don't care about this dude at all anymore, but there's nothing there and there's never going to be anything there. But she's in love and That's she's it. probably the the purest of the three in a, in a lot of ways. I think they try to present Anne as that and Anne doesn't necessarily have the same problems as Jennifer, but I think Jennifer is the most the most like sympathetic, the most yeah, sensitive. I think that's fair. Anne and Lion visit Neely in the sanitarium and so we get to see this bizarre sanitarium montage of her being tied down into beds and tubs and yeah, at some point you're, screaming crazy shit. This is kind of a long story. <laughs> like do we need to hear every detail? Yeah, it about goes on for like a while. In the sanitarium. At one point, she reminded me of Regan from The Exorcist. I agree. Just, like, I, was, I was getting that vibe, too. Her head is, like, sticking out of that tub thing, <laughs> and she's just, like, screaming. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> they weren't quite ready for that, but it was yeah. only, like, seven years later That's where true. we were at that point. Yep. <laughs> in the montage, Neely sings at a social dance, and this is the first time she actually finds Tony at this place, and it pulls Tony out of his state, and they sing together. It is a completely insane scene, and yet it is beautifully sad. Uh, yeah, I agree. I was taken aback that there's this many social dances at the sanitarium. Well, they got to pass the time. Yeah, I get it. Okay. <laughs> Lion gets Neely a Broadway show. Everybody loves a comeback. And as they're discussing it, she teases Anne about wanting to steal Lion away. Oh, no. And there is a hilarious shot of Anne's face that I almost took a picture of and sent it to you <laughs> like <laughs> TFW that face when this cunt says she's gonna steal my boyfriend because I mean Jesus her face Anne is not thrilled yeah Jennifer returns to America and is immediately diagnosed with breast cancer <laughs> it's not funny I know it but is it's just like Jesus Christ I know it's just Never a shining moment for Jennifer. Ever, no, really. and it's almost like the room. Yeah. It's that flippant of just like, <laughs> yeah, I have breast cancer That's now. That's right, yeah. It must have been a shock when you discovered it. But lots of lumps mean nothing. I mean, some are only cysts, aren't they? Yes, but this one wasn't. The doctor took a biopsy and was malignant. Oh, Jen, I'm sorry. It's pretty hard to take. Tomorrow they have to perform a mastectomy. Doctor says it's not the end of the world. He says lots of women live long and happy lives after successful breast surgery. Point is to catch it in time. I'm sure they will, Jen. Afterward, you can come to the beach with us and recuperate. I'd love to. You know, it's funny. All I've ever had was a body, and now I won't even have that. Oh, Jen, now stop talking like that. How am I going to keep Tony in the sanitarium? When I saw him, he, he didn't even know me. Well, Lion will find you a job. I know he will. And, honey, let's face it. All I know how to do is take off my clothes. Jen. Hello? Yes, I placed a call to Milwaukee. And I'm all right. Really, I am. Run along. I'll stay with you tomorrow. 
And don't you worry. Bye. Bye. Hello, Mother? I had to talk to you. There's something I have to tell you. I'm sorry Mrs. Gottlieb was shocked at my pictures. No, I, I won't be undressing in public anymore. What did I have to tell you? Nothing. Nothing. She's facing a mastectomy. She tells Anne, all I've ever had was a body, and now I won't even have that. Ultimately, when she talks to her mother over the phone, she can't even tell her. Thinking her body is her only currency in life, Jennifer commits suicide with a handful of pills in an extended, relentlessly sad, and memory-plagued scene. Yes. Rather than face her operation in an uncertain future. Now, I do have a complaint with Mark Robeson's direction here. I think putting the flashbacks over the mirror sequence sucks. I agree, and I also don't really like that it's all flashbacks to stuff we already saw. (laughs) You want a new material. Throw in something else. Is it These are the only times they ever interact with the stuff we already saw on screen? I think Sharon Tate's acting here is maybe her best in the movie, just sort of that desperate looking into the mirror thing, and it just sort of just ruins it by putting that other stuff over it. Yeah. If you want to make it shorter, you can make it shorter if you're not going to have the little montage of memories, right? then make it shorter. But I don't know. I, I just think it subtracts from the emotional impact of the scene. There is kind of an eerie darkness to her taking the pills, and then it's just kind of like laying in bed and waiting for yeah. an overdose to happen. Yeah, like the tear going down her face yeah, and everything. Yeah, that, it, that is more haunting than anything else in the movie. Jacqueline Susan herself has a cameo as a reporter asking Anne about it the next day when they're literally like carting Jennifer's body away. Yeah. I liked the last reporter asked what her measurements were. Jesus. Yeah. Insane. But Anne, good friend, plays everything close to the vest. Yeah, I have no idea. She seemed happy. I was over here. Everything was normal. No bad news. She didn't have anything bad going on. Lion accompanies neely to new york city for her big comeback even though Anne is not thrilled with the idea and lion not looking like a shining stud to me after this <laughs> Anne's like pointing out like there's no reason why you need to go yeah and be a part of this and he's like no i need to i think he's bored okay. with Anne. i yeah. think that neely is such a train wreck that she can sort of suck people in at times with into her crazy orbit well you understand that oh yeah <laughs> I love Neely in this movie. Oh, yeah. I know it's it's a way bigger part, and it has way more impact on the overall film in this movie, but I was sort of reminded of the way we talked about Renee Zellweger in Empire Records, how she's oh, just yeah. sort of this whirlwind, crazy character existing in the movie where you're just sort of drawn to it. Yeah. And instead of it just being an ensemble cast where Renee Zellweger's screen time is not that much... Neely is like one third of this movie, if not more, and because of her character being so over the top, it seems like more that she is sort of like the center of it all. Right. So I sort of get why Lion's like, you know what, Anne? Enough. Yeah, I gotta this is an important client. I have to go to New York. It's important that we stay in the same hotel room together. <laughs> well with one bed. 
Right away, there's a newspaper item that pretty much sums it up. It says, loser of the week, Ann Wells. <laughs> it's almost like a blind item, except it says Ann Wells. So it's not really a blind item if you say the name. Where is this section of the newspaper, by the way? I always got to make sure that I throw it in the trash and don't see this part for fear of my name showing up. What singing star is giving what good-looking agent a lot more than his 10%? Well, I don't think it's that hard to figure out if you put loser of the week and Wells at the top of it. That's right. Usually a blind item doesn't actually have anyone's name, <laughs> and you just sort of have to like figure it out. But <laughs> they're like, oh, you know what? Special shout-out to Anne, yeah. the biggest loser. You stink. Anne calls the room. Neely oh, revels in it when she room. says that. He's in the shower. Oh, yeah. And they play that dramatic music. It's funny, like, John Williams did the score for this movie and got nominated for his first ever Academy Award of, like, 50 nominations or whatever it is. Oh, wow. But the music in this movie is not particularly great for this movie, except for the fact that I guess it adds to the campiness because it's so dramatic sometimes. Right, right. Yeah, like, when she talks to Anne on the phone here, it's like, Dun, dun, dun. You're like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. It's almost like they use the musical cue as a hint for how to interpret a scene in case yeah. you were confused. Well, because, we needed it. Yeah, because yeah, everything moves so fast. You're like, wait, what's happening now? <laughs> oh, I guess just Neely and Lion are together now. Okay. Even though Lion tells Neely to stay home, Neely shows up at a press party for her old arch nemesis, Helen Lawson. Oh, no. So Helen is back in the film now. When Helen sees Neely show up at this party, she retreats to the bathroom, but Neely follows her in. Yikes, this sequence. Oof. This scene is unbelievable. It's yeah. another one of those scenes that just makes the movie. Because they both just start lobbing bombs at each other. <laughs> and I have to say, Helen is a little bit better at this. I think she so, always yeah. has a great comeback. She's done it for more years. <laughs> Who are you hiding from, Helen? The notices couldn't have been that bad. The show just needs a little doctoring. Don't worry, sweetheart. If it flops, I can always get you a job as understudy for my grandmother. Thanks. I've already turned down the part you're playing. Bull. Merrick's not that crazy. You should know, honey. You just came out of the nut house. It was not a nut house. Look, they drummed you right out of Hollywood. So you come crawling back to Broadway. Well, Broadway doesn't go for booze and dope. Now you get out of my way, because I've got a man waiting for me. That's a switch from the fags you're usually stuck with. At least I never married one. You take that back, you Get your hands off Oh, my God. It's you a witch! Back my head, Her head is long as she is! Give me hey, that. give me the red hand! Give me that, damn you! What the hell are you doing in there? Giving it a shampoo. Goodbye, pussycat. God, she's throwing it in the can. I'll kill her. How do you like that? I won't even go down the john. Give me that wig. Okay. You want it back? Here it comes. Special delivery. So long, Granny. I'll tell your boyfriend not to wait. And so, of course, Neely just resorts to turning it into a cat fight. But this has been like a long time coming. Obviously, it started with Neely being the newcomer on the scene. Helen is now in a 
Broadway show that has gotten bad reviews in its previews in Philadelphia, so they're trying to like retool it. She's sort of struggling. She's older, obviously. She's on the ropes. But Neely has all of her own baggage oh, because yeah. of everyone, the rehab and everything. Yeah, everyone knows. And it's an unbelievable scene because it almost feels like it comes out of nowhere because when you're watching this the first time, it's not even like you're expecting Helen Lawson to ever show up again. I agree. And you're like, how many years have passed? She doesn't really seem any older. I think it's supposed to be like no more than like five, okay. probably yeah. total. All right. That seems right. A cat fight erupts and it sees Neely pull off Helen's wig and then run into a toilet and try to flush it. Yeah, Neely was stunned that it was a wig. Yeah. The rest of us were like, Neely, come on. But that's the thing. Helen's hair under the wig, it's just it doesn't even look white. It's just like kind of blondish. By the way, I don't think it looks bad. No, either. it doesn't. I feel like that's a wig too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know why they're acting like it's such a nightmare, but okay. Yeah. Fine. That just sort of adds to the humor, I right. guess. But in a weird way, in the fallout of this scene, especially later when Helen is talking to Lion and some of the other people, it almost seems like this fight with Neely is a moment of clarity for the old battle axe. She's almost approaching it now with like pity for Neely and like wisdom, where she's just sort of like, yeah, this kid's fucked up. Yeah, I mean, it's hard <laughs> not to look at it like that at a certain point. Back in L.A., Anne has turned to Neely's old friends, the dolls. That's right. Stoned. And depressed, she stumbles along the beach. Just starts rolling around in the water. She collapses and then almost drowns in the ocean like an idiot. Yeah, really not like the best drug-induced sequence you've ever seen. And this is the only time that we see Anne dabble in the titular dolls, if you will. Yes. But she pulls herself together pretty quickly. It's not like a whole lot of drama. This is not really the lifestyle for me. She quits Hollywood entirely and heads back to the idyllic home she left behind in New England. Unclear at this point if she's actually quitting anything. Well, just quits yeah. the scene. I'm, I'm, I'm done trying. Neely has turned into Helen Lawson, essentially. Yes. She's now threatened by a new and talented up-and-comer, her understudy in this new play. And Lion walks out on her, just disgusted. And out of nowhere... We have a young Richard Dreyfus. Oh. Playing a Broadway gopher, just knocking go. on her door. Yeah. Just a full head of hair on that kid in wow. 1967. Yeah. Brown hair. It would get a lot worse. He's only really in that one part, but he discovers Neely in her dressing room. She's wearing the clothes for the second act instead of the first act. Right. She's drunk. She's relapsed. This is a quick pull. We're, we're going with the understudy. She's essentially fired, although they don't really ever show her being fired, per se. She's replaced by the understudy and then continues her bender at a nearby bar. It's like Tom Brady going in for Bledsoe. It's just never going back. Yeah. And essentially, she's left screaming and sobbing in a deserted alley when the bar closes, and that's it for Neely. It's sort of a jarring, sad ending. Almost too relatable to some nights in my life. (laughs) Everybody. Hey, everybody, where are you? Where are you? Gone. 
Everybody's gone. Well with them. Who needs them? The whole world loves me! Where are you? Jennifer. calling out for not only Anne, who she's betrayed, but Jennifer, who's dead, and Mel, her first husband. She's lost yeah. everybody, essentially. Well, we're, we've reached the point of mental breakdown. We have. Us. <laughs> well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Our listeners are like, enough with this movie. We don't know what's going on. There's That's so nuts. many characters. <laughs> yeah, well. There's a lot of jumping around in time. It just It's really hard to keep this all straight. But... I feel like in preparation for this podcast, I've gotten a new appreciation for this movie because I've really been able to like focus in on it. It seemed overwhelming when I started this week of preparation. I was like, oh my God, there's so much happening. It happens so fast. That is true. I'm always like, that's going to give us a lot to talk about, though. We're talking. Yeah, we got it. Although, to your point, the listeners are like, oh no, too much material. <laughs> too much material for them to dig into. The film ends with Lion following Anne back to New England. He asks her to marry him, but she declines, ultimately deciding to remain happily single and independent. Absolutely. And that's how the movie ends. I always took the Lion thing at the end, too. Always, you know, for all three times that I've watched this movie. But (laughs) how can you not be tainted after the shit that he pulls to go with Neely? Yeah. I mean, it's just like... No, I'm not fucking marrying you. In this version of the story, it would be hard to believe that Anne would be that pathetic Yeah. at this point. Now, that brings us to some changes from the novel. As I mentioned, Harlan Ellison wanted his name taken off of it because he was pissed about the changes. The book ends much more downbeat than the movie for all of the characters. Obviously not for Jennifer. I mean, dead is dead. But... Anne does not get to be happy and single and independent. She is stuck with Lion because she has a kid, and he cheats relentlessly on her, and she just sort of accepts it, and Mm. it's just sort of a sad life. Yeah, this is definitely the more positive ending then for Anne. The book also begins in 1945 and takes place throughout two decades up until 1965. So 
they definitely condensed everything into a much shorter time span. I think the entire movie is supposed to be throughout the mid sixties. Yeah. Maybe they, some of the stuff with like the degenerative disease and the breast cancer feels a little less crowbarred <laughs> over a twenty year period. Yeah. And they definitely cut out some of the more salacious items. There's like a lesbian affair that oh. Jennifer has and some of that stuff. Value of the dolls is the warmest color. <laughs> I just think that the world wasn't ready yet for some of that stuff. Yeah. One of the weird and tragic things, though, is how the actresses in the film sort of mirrored their characters in certain ways. Within a couple of years, Sharon Tate was murdered and dead, much like Jennifer. Although Jennifer wasn't murdered. I don't really like to talk about it. Patty Duke struggled with mental illness for a long time and suffered a breakdown and I don't really know for sure, but may have dabbled in some of the same things that Neely O'Hara does. I think eventually she was diagnosed as like bipolar and became an advocate for mental health awareness and all that stuff. But it took a long time because back then it wasn't something people were really that familiar with and knew a lot about. And so I think it went undiagnosed for a while. And she sort of struggled a lot like Neely. And Barbara Perkins slowed down and stepped back. I think she moved to England at one point. She never really fully gave up acting, but it seems like she sort of stepped away a little bit like Anne does in the movie. Okay. I did want to read one little horrifying thing just for a trivia thing that I noticed. The night the Manson family murdered Sharon Tate, the actress had invited Jacqueline Susan to her home for a dinner party. According to Vanity Fair, Rex Reed came by the Beverly Hills Hotel where Susan was staying, and they decided to stay in instead of going to Tate's. The next day, Susan heard about the murder and cried by the pool. Oh, wow. A few years later, when Susan was diagnosed with cancer for the second time, she joked her death would have been quicker if she had gone to Tate's that night. Yikes, that's a dark joke. Well, Jacqueline Susan did not live that much longer After Valley of the Dolls. She had breast cancer and then died in the 70s. In fact, the lawsuit over Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, in which she was awarded money, it went to like her family because she was dead by that point. That is something that I'm sure could shake you to your core, though. One, these people you know are horrifically murdered, but then it's like you were supposed to be there. The weird thing is, though, I've heard that about other people, though. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people turned down that party invite that night. Seemingly. Yeah. I'm not being suspicious of anyone in particular, but I have heard that, I think. It's sort of like the who was supposed to be on the planes for 9-11 thing, where you've heard like different people Uh throughout the years. I don't know. Who knows what's true or not true. So let's, instead of doing recommendations, which we're not going to do, let's discuss the sequel, which is not really a sequel. Yeah. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which came out in 1970, and it on the surface, would seem like more appropriate for One Trashy Summer. Insane for many reasons, one of which written by Roger Ebert. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was directed by Russ Meyer and co-written by Meyer with Roger Ebert. Yes, not Roger Ebert. (laughs) It was originally intended to be a sequel. In fact, I think the title came from a treatment done by Jacqueline Susan, who did not like Valley of the Dolls, by the way, and considered it a piece of shit. (laughs) Which isn't surprising. Yeah, yeah. But it was turned into parody, mostly because of the poor reviews, despite the big box office. Although its fate was essentially the same. 
Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was trashed upon its release, it became a modest hit and then turned into a cult classic, much like Valley of the Dolls. Although it was nowhere near as big of a hit. I think it was a $2 million budget. It made like $9 million or something. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is absolutely insane. It's almost like, can you even call it a movie? <laughs> it's just so crazy. Yeah, the story is absurd. The characters are crazy. Just like every other Russ Meyer movie, every woman in it has like D-cup breasts. It was rated X. It wouldn't be rated NC-17 now. But Women just getting nude at parties. Yeah, there's a lot of nudity, especially for that time. It was very much pushing the envelope. As I said, it was rated X, which is over the top. I mean, it doesn't deserve yeah, yeah, that. But yeah, Although I that... watched it today in preparation. Oof. And, you know, it's mind-boggling to me that this movie has a higher score on IMDb and Letterboxd than Valley of the Dolls. This movie is not that good. No, no, no. If anything, it's just it's kind of compelling because of how insane it is. It's kind of like a fun watch. But yeah, I don't watch this and remotely feel the same way that I do as when I watch Valley of the Dolls, which actually feels like a real movie that I can get into. There's a certain tragic element of Valley of the Dolls, which I think is hard to ignore no matter how callous you want to be and how much you want to think it's campy and stupid and trashy. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is not like that. That movie is trying to be a parody or a satire, which for me can never be true camp because true camp, yeah. you can't be aware that you're campy. But it doesn't even like focus on one specific thing. They're like, let's take every element from any like exploitation yeah. type genre or movie or whatever and just throw it into one thing yeah it definitely is like a blender of craziness i compared the idea of saying you like beyond the valley of the dolls more than valley of the dolls as like saying you like snakes on a plane more than you like roadhouse or something okay yeah you know what i mean right where one is like clearly trying to be dumb and over the top yeah and one just is naturally Naturally. (laughs) yeah and i think there's always something more endearing and entertaining about something that's being earnest without question yeah I don't want something so self-aware that it's just beyond the point of being fun. Now, there's Everything a fine like line. Winking at the camera and winking at itself. There is a fine line because I do love satire. We talk about satire a lot on this show and and how people seem to understand it less and less as time goes by. But I think there's a difference between like pure satire and like yes, as you're saying, winking at the camera the whole time. One of the most misunderstood movies I think ever, probably by almost all sides it's like fight club or something which is a satire but that's not the same thing as like beyond the valley of the dolls it's like a different kind of satire there's no like well, winking at the camera sure. yeah or even american beauty which for some reason we talked about for three hours on this podcast <laughs> like that's so grounded in reality that the satire is more subtle and it's right. a different kind of thing it, that whole thing that's where you feel like there's a message from the satire i'm not really feeling that much of one from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, and so like even a movie that I enjoy, and I do enjoy Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, just not as much as Valley of the Dolls, but okay, I know whenever Machete came out, I was like, I love this, it's fun, but at the same time, it's so self-aware and over the top that like you don't have that same emotional connection as like a movie that thinks it's genuine and never is winking at the camera, no matter how crazy it is. So even when Neely says like the most absurd lines of dialogue... In Valley of the Dolls, there's no point where you're like, they're doing this to be funny. That never would even cross your mind. I agree, yeah. And so, 
okay, it's fair if as an audience you find it funny. That's fine. I don't agree with it, but that is what it is. But at no point are they thinking like, oh, yeah, this will be funny. <laughs> right, right. That's up to the audience. And that's what makes it great. Yeah. Whereas Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, to me, is... They were going for something. Yeah, and it's somewhat successful. And it, I do think that there's parts of it that are interesting. And visually, like I said, some of the women that are in it, I I, I can't even explain it. Yeah. <laughs> They're so beautiful. <laughs> I think that- I put on Letterboxd for it. I would be like such a huge fan of this band <laughs> that they're in. I know. It just was such a different time, like in the 60s and 70s, whenever people were very open with sexuality and nudity it's like the women that they would get to be in movies like this i I just can't even believe it (laughs) it is also like kind of weird in beyond the valley of the dolls how it like sort of ends with this dark home invasion like murder well that was the whole other thing too which seemed to be inspired a little bit by the sharon tate thing which had just happened the year before and that's something they would never do now obviously it feels in poor taste it feels in poor taste but i think that was part of the attitude of like anything okay. goes yeah. like pushing the envelope it's like making jokes about 9-11 like when 9-11 was not that long ago sort of yeah but i just think it was sort of like anything's game kind of a thing and there is sort of a callousness about it that is a little distasteful i think like for us who have seen the movie decades after the fact it's sort of different but yeah you're not reacting in that way unless People like us who still feel very emotionally touched by the Sharon Tate. <laughs> yeah, and it's not like it's exactly the same or anything no, like no, that. But, but yeah, it is. I think it's noticeable. Yeah, and the ending doesn't even really fit with the tone of the rest of the movie. Right. It is very bizarre. But yeah, both Valley of the Dolls and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls are on Criterion. Yeah, sequential releases. And I'm sure that you can check either of those films out on different streaming services, unlike Hot Dog the Movie, which you could only find on Blu-ray. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I think we should just leave it at that and skip over recommendations this week. Yeah, that's good. Start fresh next time. So we got two more episodes of One Trashy Summer left, and then things will get back on schedule with some big stuff that I think people will be really excited about. Okay. So as always, we thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at GreatestPod, and we would ask you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Give us a rating and review. Ask us for a sticker on Twitter. Follow us on Letterboxd. Everything. Just interact with the show. We're having a good time. It's movies. We'd love to What else is there? Know what you think about the show so you can tweet at us your thoughts on either the movies we talk about or whatever. For those of you who have been wondering, I know that There's a few of you out there who are probably still waiting on your listener requests. Those will be coming in the following months. Don't worry. The schedule's tough. Yeah. Right now, I'm going to be honest with anyone who's hearing this. I don't know how many people are actually making it to the end of this episode. But if we get new listener requests in now, they probably won't be happening anytime soon. I kind of know what, like, Neely was going through. You know what I mean? The showbiz stuff. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Yeah, I'm, like, Neely ducking out on Tony... Yeah, when I right. see those listener requests coming, I'm like, oh, God, we got to hide. <laughs> no, I think we're sort of trying to come up with a plan for like future listener requests into the future as to like maybe like having a special month or something. I don't know. We'll something. see. Yeah. Probably not a month. But right now, we maybe have three on the schedule. We'll finally break down and get the Patreon and, you know, <laughs> that'll yeah. be a certain level. That'll go well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So yeah, for those of you who are still waiting, we haven't forgotten. We have three more coming up in the next couple of months, and we'll probably get to some more in the future if people want them. But right now, we've sort of hit pause on them, which is why we're not mentioning them as often. But we haven't forgotten, for those of you who've got them in already. That's true. All right, so I think that'll do it for Valley of the Dolls. Okay. Did it I, go well? I think so. I need those damn dolls. That's right. It's good material, and I'm glad we covered it. This was one that I was sort of hesitant about, even though it had been on the schedule. I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And then once I dove into the material this week, I was like, yes, I want to do this. You got to just get past that part where there's like three songs in a row, and then you're kind of good. <laughs> I'll plant my own tree. <laughs> what the fuck? All right, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Shut up. But if you even look at me funny, if you do one thing that I find weird, which is, you know, like your middle name, see, you're doing it right now. Can you just act like a human boy for one minute here? Look at me like a person. You can't do it for more than a few seconds. Look at me like a human boy.
Don't mess around with me. You're going to be back on that plane. You understand me? I understand that I love you. All right, all right, all right. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Stephen, walk back. He says, please don't hurt him. He's the only one left in his family. All right, you know something? Take the dinosaur and go to your room with the dinosaur. I don't want the dinosaur. You take the dinosaur. Go ahead. Go ahead. Write your confession. Yes. Pretty soon there won't be anyone left in his family. <laughs>